Rush, your Mr. Robot Recap Podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. And uh, we're recording at a different location today. Yeah, we've got a new venue. We're taking uh, a day trip to, to Hamilton for Supercrawl. Uh, did you get to see much of Supercrawl? Um, not really, actually. I kind of just got here and walked right here. But there's a lot of cool stuff there. Um, I, I lived in Hamilton for a while, and I always used to go to Supercrawl, so I wanted to make sure to come by while I had the chance. We aren't aware, because Supercrawl probably sounds completely ridiculous if you haven't heard of it before. It's like an annual festival that happens in Hamilton, Ontario, and there are all kinds of cool artists and live music and things like that. And there's like a mini version of it once a month, isn't there? Yeah, just the art crawl. Um, sounds pretty sweet. We'll have to check out some more of it after the show. <laughs> yeah. So I think that for this, um, for this episode, we're planning to highlight a song that is actually from the episode itself again. Yeah, and so this series makes excellent use of um, everything from like really contemporary music to classical music, so I thought we'd have a classical music choice for you. So there are actually two pieces of Hope the Planets that are in this season. Um, one is Mars. That's like the loud, percussive one everybody knows. Okay. And also one that I want to say is kind of like, you know, maybe like a long shot favorite, uh, Neptune. <laughs> episode four and it starts with a flashback Elliot's in his apartment and uh, Darlene knocks on the door this is a big surprise to him because it, it, I think that it's indicated that they haven't seen each other in a little while it's a bit of a surprise and it's Halloween night and I feel like Darlene is somebody you kind of expect to love Halloween yeah she planned ahead she planned ahead because she shows up wearing an F Society mask uh, I guess it's not really clear that it's an F Society mask at this point because um, they kind of explain the origin of it which is this movie uh, what was it called again it's called The Careful Massacre of the Bourgeoisie. <laughs> I remember thinking that was incredible. I, I googled it, and if you google it as well, you're going to find out that it's not a, an actual film, unfortunately. It's not. I mean, we may have to make the actual <laughs> film after we're done with this project. Um, but, but the makers of the show did release a nine-minute clip. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it's we super should, exciting. We should make an episode of the podcast about that. I think we are going to have that as a bonus episode. We're going to review that one carefully. <laughs> also, you know, to help you indoctrinate your children uh, and help them become uh, hackers also. So, yeah, the scene, um, it, it kind of is the, the genesis of F-Society. I think that this is where Elliot kind of gets it in his mind that he wants to, he wants to change the world, is what he says. This goes way back in time. So, at this point, he's actually, Angela's helping to get him a job at Allsafe. Yeah, that's a good way of um, anchoring a point in time, I guess. And he already has some ideas of what he might use that for, because he's talking about going in there and being a Trojan horse. <laughs> I really like that he used that term for it, because a Trojan horse, like, of course, it's a, a thing that existed in history, but it also has that second definition inside, uh, like, security engineering. It's funny, because I think it's not that old a term, but it feels kind of old-timey in terms <laughs> of information engineering. People don't really use the term anymore, but the concept is still there. Could you still, like, would a Trojan horse attack still be something people would use? Oh, yeah. Um, I think that actually a bunch of these ransomware attacks could have been categorized as Trojan horses. Oh, interesting. I think, yeah, maybe just because people don't talk about it in that way anymore. <laughs> I kind of forgotten it existed. 
Uh, it's interesting in this one because they are talking a little bit about, they used to watch this movie when they were kids. Yeah. And so they talk about their parents. Apparently nobody talks to their mom anymore. Yeah, when they're watching the movie, they say that uh, it probably was the root of all of their psychological dysfunction, but they also are kind of able to um, bond over their unhappy childhood. That's true. And of course, because Darlene is a few years younger than Elliot, she hardly has any memories of Mr. Robot when he was alive. And there's this kind of really uncanny scene where you see Elliot, she asks him to put on his father's old Mr. Robot wow. sweater and the FCI mask. That's pretty unsettling. <laughs> it's really unsettling, knowing what we know at this point about the story and about what's going on with Elliot, right? I do like this scene. I think it's nice to see them interacting as siblings, where it's like they have, like they're kind of annoyed with each other, but they also obviously are very close <laughs> and care a lot about each other. So I like this because so often we see them having to make difficult decisions together or doing kind of scary things together. So this scene is just nice. It reminds me of when... Um... In an earlier episode, Angela was going to come by Elliot's place to smoke some weed and watch a movie or something like that. And they kind of joke about how it's so wholesome, and I guess that is what uh, Elliot and Darlene get a chance to do in the scene. It's true, because this doesn't have a lot of character development in terms <laughs> of like regular living stuff, so it's nice to see this moment. I appreciate this scene. So the next scene is, uh, you know, we're flashing forward. It's also a scene where Darlene comes to visit Elliot. There's really a sharp contrast between these two moments. It's definitely very deliberate. They're having an argument in the scene about whether to move ahead with step two. Is uh, it really clear what that is yet? I don't, not to me it isn't. And sorry, they call it stage two, actually, when they're yeah. talking about it. Um, Darlene is pushing really hard. Uh, she says that they're not done, they have to go for more, and Elliot tells her to stop. You know, he thinks it's too dangerous and they should just call it off. But I think she's really set on completing that mission. Mm -hmm. And, oh, you know, the, only, the, the information we get about stage two is that there is apparently a bailout vote scheduled to happen in D.C. Oh, so that's um, the action that Darlene wants to take, right? She wants to mess it up. Interesting note in this, so when Darlene walks in, she's wearing these uh, heart-shaped glasses. Those kind of become iconic for her over this season. I think they really suit her, but it's a weird, it made me think of, I can't remember if it was a cover of one of the translations, or if it was a movie poster uh, from Lolita. The book? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Nelabob book. There are a bunch of references to that in the show. Um, you picked up on one actually related to Darlene as well. Um, well, I didn't really pick up on it so much as I found it while I was Googling uh, information about this episode, but uh, Darlene's um, hacker handle, which we find her using IRC later, is um, Dolores Gray, I think, which is, sorry, Dolores Hayes, which is, I think, a character from Lolita. Uh, I'm rereading it right now. So weirdly, I picked up the copy that I had uh, to reread it for this show, mm -hmm. and I always use bus transfers as bookmarks. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, so I last opened that book 14 years and one day ago. Please. <laughs> yeah, it's super crazy. What's Elliot's username? Uh, Sam Setheel. We've heard that name before. I like that. Elliot's a bit suspicious of Darlene here. He doesn't think she's being honest with him, and I think we know that she's not fully disclosing what she knows. But she's angry with him. She thinks he's not helping, and she thinks they've got a duty to complete the mission. It seems like um, we, we had just seen that Elliot was the person who originally got the idea to start a society. But there have also been multiple instances where he's kind of wavered, and Darlene has kind of always been there to push him ahead and make sure that he stays on track. 
I think what we're seeing is her emergence as the leader. Uh, and so that comes across strongly here because I think she's going to do with or without him. So in a previous episode, we saw that um, Dom had arrived at the FC side of the arcade. And now she's there, not, not by herself, but with an entire team of FBI agents. She reveals that um, she was able to find their location because the list of FBI agents that Romero had printed out, well, it was information from a publicly available um, leak of FBI information. The names that he had printed were a subset of individuals who had interviewed Gideon Goddard specifically. So he was kind of um, the missing piece that made everything click for Dom here. We also know that he was interrogated a bunch of times, so it's possible that Goddard had given them up in some way. So, um, so there's that connection. I think it would be easy to underestimate Dom. She comes across as a bit, I don't know, like goofy. The lollipop doesn't help. She's got to stop doing that. <laughs> it happens again in this, uh, in this episode and the next episode, yeah. I think, and I just don't like to see it. So everyone thinks that this is ridiculous, that this could be the spot. And she, she says, you know, no, 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 hackers believe in hiding in plain sight. And so they're kind of going through the motions of doing the search um, until Dom finds a bullet casing. Which is kind of shocking news. Absolutely, because then they have to take it seriously and also kind of follow the road that she's going down. Well, it makes you wonder, um, when was this bullet fired? Because I think the implication is that it was the gun that was in the popcorn machine that Elliot had reached into when Tyrell was there. And so, I mean, this show is so good at raising questions and then making you wait and wait and wait for answers. So this bullet casing, of course, Dom's hoping something that's going to be useful. This next scene is a Joanna Wellick scene, and she gets kind of more interesting and more terrifying every time I see her. Oh yeah, especially in these uh, couple episodes to come. She's having a conversation in a diner with... Uh, an associate? I can't really figure out who this guy is. Um, they don't really do a good job of explaining it. And actually, because I, um, when I first watched season two, I took a break between season one and season two. So I completely had no idea who this character was. But they were introduced in, um, I think the finale of season one. They're the, the attendants at the parking lot where Elliot woke up in that black escalade. Which is pretty messed up, especially because he's freaking out because he's being interrogated by the FBI. Which is a pretty good reason to be afraid, I guess. I guess so. Um, it's also clear that Joanna has been paying him. Not the reason for that, or the task he's been given isn't clear, but that he's expecting a weekly sum of money from her, and that's getting increasingly tough for her to deliver on. Uh, yeah, because she doesn't have any income, I guess, now that Tyrell is not around. That's a big problem, and also we learned that E-Corp hasn't released his severance money, so that kind of lump sum that, you know, I'm sure she was counting on uh, in his absence, and he's been absent for some time now, um, that hasn't arrived, and of course there are all the restrictions on withdrawing money, so she's finding herself in a tough position, because I don't think she necessarily wants to or likes to use violence as a first resort. No, and it seems like, um, like that's what Mr. Sutherland's, or I think that's his name, her associate's uh, intuition is. I think that he suggests that right away, but she's not really hearing it right now. One little detail I noticed, and just because we pointed it out in some of the other characters, um, is that contrast of white and black and the potential symbolism there. So previously, Joanna usually travels in the black Escalade with Tyrell, and here she's getting into a white Escalade. Interesting. 
And yeah, I don't know if it means anything, but I feel like in this show, everything means something. Especially when it's black and white. That's a pretty stark contrast, so to say. Um, so in a very brief scene with Joanna here, uh, we're of course going to learn more about this later on. So, I don't know, Angela and those affirmation things. They're getting increasingly weird. So, two of the ones I, I made notes of from this, so previously they're sort of about confidence or, you know, earning money and prosperity, but these are things like, I dissolve all false <laughs> messages. I noted that too, and I really have no idea what that's supposed to mean. Well, the second one is really creepy, too. My beliefs create my own reality. Wow. That, that does have some meaning in a show like this, though, doesn't it? Well, in a show where there are so many questions about what reality is, or whose reality is the one that we're inhabiting, or even observing as the viewer, I think these are powerful. And also because we've talked a lot about truth and lies in this, like just the idea of dissolving false messages. I think both of these are way more resonant than some of the other uh, creepy white lady affirmations <laughs> that uh, Angela does. And so Angela has made a decision. Remember where we last saw Angela? Um, with Price? With Price at that... That dinner. Fancy, fancy dinner, where at the end he gives her a disc that contains information that could send two men to jail for their participation in sludge gate. I'm going to laugh every time you say Sludgegate. Hashtag Sludgegate. <laughs> um, so she, she did have them arrested. They're being walked out as she arrives at work. Yeah, the, they only spend like a couple seconds of screen time showing you that, so I actually missed it the first time around. But yeah, we see that she does end up doing that. I like that, and I think it's important because I think it shows that she's not fully gone to the dark side, that there's still some part of her that is on track with her original mission. So I think that's the significance of that scene. It's very brief. Then we get another brief Angela scene. We're just going to weave these together to continue the storyline. Yeah, the next scene, uh, she meets her lawyer. We actually find out that the lawyer is the one who snitched. So Angela must have provided the information to her, and she's gone to the relevant authorities. Using them like a proxy, I guess. Using them like <laughs> a proxy. I guess that's what a lawyer fundamentally <laughs> might be. Um, the concern here is that by giving her the information, Price is creating leverage against her. He's very, uh, like, shrewd to pick up on something like that, I think. I think Angela is fundamentally kind of a wise character. I get that impression. Where I think she sees the good and the bad motivations in people. Um, because her thought is, apparently, and this is all very vague, there's something in the settlement offers that relates directly to her. And so he needs something from her to get that whole matter resolved and that whole scandal wiped away. So she thinks this is an opportunity for Price to create some leverage, which may put her in a bit of a precarious or dangerous position. One thing I noted, um, maybe you can expand on this a little bit because I didn't, uh, didn't expand on it in my notes, but she says that she's the thing that's missing. And what context do you put that in? Oh, so I have that that's... She's the piece that's missing because that's the piece of the settlement offer that, I don't know if it's some specific thing relating to her mother's death or that she needs to give the okay to something. Ah, okay. But that thing that's missing, that's her, is the settlement offer that would put that whole thing to bed. I got it. This is a big problem with my notes sometimes because I kind of write them in, in point form and then I have no idea what they, they mean when I revisit them later. It's like this time when I think I saw like a shopping list in your fridge or something like that that said hashtag bat phone and I still don't really know what that's about. I wrote that 
list, and I still haven't figured out what that was about. That was years ago. <laughs> hashtag Sludgegate, hashtag Batphone. <laughs> so the Ray character is still uh, hanging around, getting a friendlier with Elliot. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I guess we'll swing around back to that storyline. No, I don't... I don't know, maybe it's because at this point you shouldn't trust anyone in this show, but I just really don't trust this character, and I don't know why he wants to know so much. Uh, I think that Elliot knows something like that too, right? I think he makes him a bit uncomfortable, because I think he wanted nothing to do with him, and Mr. Robot <laughs> really motivated that, right? Yeah. So they're, uh, they're playing chess. Nice icebreaker, I guess. Um, we were just talking because we've been talking about the black and white symbolism throughout the show. Which chess, black and white, I guess there's some obvious symbolism there too. Um, we were just talking amongst ourselves offline about <laughs> um, whether there's an advantage for one side or the other. Yeah, what I was trying to figure out, I, I knew that white or black had an advantage, so I was trying to figure out if um, black had an advantage in chess, because generally like security experts say that the black hat has the advantage over the white hat, just because it's easier to break something than it is to defend it. So I thought it would have been pretty cool if it was also the case that the black had the advantage in chess. Um, we looked it up, and it's apparently the reverse, where <laughs> chess players and theorists generally agree that white has some advantage in the game. Uh, I guess just like in society. <laughs> so uh, so it's, it is the flip of it, where, because, I mean, you might assume it's a disadvantage because they have to go first, but I think when you go first, you, you set the agenda in a way. Yeah. So, um, so they are playing chess. Uh, I'm so uncomfortable with the Ray storyline, and I don't even know why yet. Uh, so speaking of chess, uh, this little chess match between Elliot and Ray uh, gives Mr. Robot an idea, and he gets an idea to challenge Elliot to a game as sort of an ultimatum. It's really a winner-takes-all situation because the idea here is that whoever loses the game, that consciousness has to leave. Yeah, that's pretty high stakes, I guess. I think it's really hard. I think it's really high stakes. And Mr. Robot kind of makes the argument for a unified self. Um, in some of the um, internet conversations around this show, people refer to Elliot Collective. So <laughs> the two of them, and then Elliot Prime. Elliot, the way we see Elliot physically represented. That's a cool way to refer to it. And so Mr. Robot is making the argument for one unified self, which I think implies he thinks he's going to win. <laughs> He, he kind of comes from a more powerful position right now. Uh, that's my, perspe my perspective, at least. See, that's interesting, because I think the power changes. Well, I think that, like, Elliot is kind of, um, he's starting to realize that he's more in control than he thinks, but Mr. Robot still kind of has the ability to just, like, show up and ruin his day every time. That's true, and to sabotage even the efforts he makes to keep himself out of trouble, right? Elliot does consider this offer, and he decides to run it by Krista, who he's still seeing. There's a very brief scene. What's interesting here is he says he hasn't told her about us, so his imaginary friend. Oh, the imaginary friend. I thought yeah. that it was talking about Mr. Robot. No, because she knows about Mr. Robot, but not about us. Krista's advice is to accept the presence of Mr. Robot and learn to manage it. Elliot says that annihilation is always the answer. <laughs> wow, yeah, he's pretty blunt about that, I guess. I think but he's having a hard day. <laughs> the quote that I really liked from Krista is that um, you can't destroy part of yourself. She also says the game is a dangerous gamble. So she's, I think, worried about him making his situation worse by engaging in this. But it sounds like Elliot's pretty positive about it. So this is a pretty cool scene because although... Um, 
in previous scenes, especially in the post-credits scene of the season finale for the first season, um, White Rose and Price have had some interactions. But this is the first one where they kind of um, uh, directly are connected to being White Rose. Does that make sense? It does, because the, we see... So this is a phone conversation between them, but we see White Rose... And so remember the white rose presents themselves differently at different times. So in their feminine presenting self, right, um, curling her eyelashes and talking to Bryce on the phone at the same <laughs> time. And I love that because this is the most badass conversation to have while you're curling her eyelashes. I think it's really cool how they just have like a switch that they flip to switch between these two personalities that they have. And I, I really want that to be a bit more developed later, uh, what this sort of um, motivation is for that. And... and how they exist in those two roles simultaneously. So uh, I want that. I love this character because I have a lot of curiosity about all of the different um, ways they have reach into this story. So the interaction with Price is interesting. Um, White Rose here questions putting their faith in Angela. So White Rose knows who Angela is. That's a pretty big deal. And knows also that Price has brought her into the fold to try to involve her in whatever their goals are. The other, I think, really interesting piece here is that White Rose says it is not an option to close the plant. Yeah, which plant do you think that's referring to? <laughs> oh, oh, I do think, I haven't said Sludgegate for a moment, <laughs> but this will go back to the Washington Township toxic waste scandal, and so the processing plant involved there, apparently it's not an option to close it. Why it's not an option, I don't know at this point. Or even what that plant does, or represents. <laughs> yeah, they kind of... Uh, do a lot of telling without a lot of showing it. And so that, I think, is I mean, meant to tie it back to that case, which, of course, they're making efforts to settle, but it sounds like that plant might still be kind of a live threat. So I think that's the valuable information we get in this scene, and I am truly curious uh, about how that one is going to move forward. One pretty cool thing here that kind of harkens back to that post credit scene in, se in the, the finale of season one um, back then when we saw White Rose talking to Price, he had said something like, um, Nero, uh, played the fiddle as Rome burns, because they were discussing this in the direct aftermath of the 5-9 hack. Uh, in this conversation, Price says to White Rose that Rome burned in a day, but it was not, uh, rebuilt in one. So I think that that kind of is intended to reference that earlier scene. I think that does reference it really nicely, and I think it also talks about their recovery strategy, because they're looking at this bailout, and they're thinking it like a six-month minimum timeline for recovery, which is way slower <laughs> than either the government or regular people, or even Price and White Rose, for that matter, want this to bounce back. No kidding. I think another important detail that's mentioned in this uh, conversation is that um, Price is going forth with an e-coin strategy, but uh, like with so many other things in this show, they don't really explain what that is just yet. So... In the next scene, we see that um, B and E skills are actually uh, <laughs> like pretty widely shared among this group of characters because Joanna has broken into Scott Knoll's house. With some uh, social engineering and housekeeper. Pretty crafty. Although, to be honest, I would do whatever that woman asked me to do also. <laughs> she has a kind of commanding presence like that, I guess. I think so too, and also the ability to seem very sweet and non-threatening when she wants to. So I think she could be very uh, manipulative force if she wanted to be. Yeah. And um, she's also kind of a good negotiator, I guess. Um, the reason that she's swung by at Scott Knoll's place is that, uh, as we were discussing earlier, um, E Corp hasn't yet released Tyrell Severance from when he was fired in the previous season. 
So uh, uh, Joanna is trying to get this money because she needs it for her newborn child. She suggests in a bit of a quid pro quo, which are three words I can never say correctly together. So Me that either. was really good on my part. I avoided I, saying it because I was afraid of screwing that. I just want everyone to know that was a one take. <laughs> she suggested they should help each other. So he gets a severance release. She'll testify that on the night of his wife's murder, Tyrell never came home. He's not really very happy with that arrangement, though. And, well, actually, he's just not really very happy in general ever since that moment, because we see that he's kind of taken a very deep descent into depression and alcoholism and all those other things that sometimes follow when your wife is murdered. Ultimately, he refuses her offer, and that's where this piece is left. So the storyline moves back to Darlene. Darlene's traveling by subway, as she always does. I don't know why I didn't point it out. Um... She thinks she's being followed, so she gets off, and right away she gets mugged. Yeah, I guess she was right to be a little paranoid. But it's not a real mug, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's just Cisco. It's Cisco who slips her a note, and she needs to go meet him a couple of blocks away. Um, Cisco, I thought that scene was very clever, the mugging, the misdirect, because he's got some information to give her that she doesn't have. So he tells her the FBI found the arcade. Darlene asks if the Dark Army's behind it. He says no, but he wanted to check on her anyway. Um, the scene gets real weird here. There's this <laughs> weird... Um, Cisco kind of continues giving her information about the FBI while they have angry bathroom sex. The awkwardness of this scene kind of reminded me of the forced uh, partnership with... Um, sorry, Angela and Shayla very early in the series. Yeah, like all, it's almost uncomfortable like that, but you kind of... I kind of like them as a team, to be honest. They're a nice couple. They are, they are, and I think they're like, they balance each other in some ways. And also, he obviously cares about her, but things are getting scary. Because the other things Cisco tells her uh, in the bathroom are that Romero was researching the FBI when he got killed. And so that's making Dark Army really nervous. And the other thing is about um, Operation Bernstein, right? And so I think that's the FBI operation code name. That makes sense. Darlene just wants to leave town, but Cisco's message to her is that if she does that, the Dark Army will make it ugly. And what I really, what I think is a nice caring moment here, um, and I think Darlene would be hard to care for. I think she usually presents herself <laughs> pretty tough. Yeah, well, she kind of tries to keep her distance, is the impression I get. And I think she'd be reluctant to lean on anybody, but he says to her, let me help you. And so I think his goal here, for as weird as this scene gets, um, is to try to keep her safe. And she's she's scared, and so I'm not sure that she feels that she can adequately protect herself anymore. The next scene has um, Elliot in the diner with Leon. Uh, it, it seems like it's actually the first well-lit scene in this entire episode, and uh, it's not really very substantive, because it seems like Elliot is a little distracted. He's just staring at this chessboard, which he's actually brought to dinner with him. Leon asks him if he wants to play, but he says no. Um, I love the Leon character a lot, I have to say. Yeah, you know, I think that Dom is one of my favorite characters, but Leon might actually be my, like, top number one favorite. So it goes to show you that they introduced some really good characters in season two. Leon says to Elliot that in the Age of Enlightenment, people use chess for self-improvement. And he asks who Elliot's planning to play. And Elliot sort of intimates <laughs> it's not a person, so... Uh, so Leon asks, what are you playing for? And Elliot says, existence. And then Leon says, don't. How would you react if somebody had said that to you when you asked them that question? I feel like there's only two ways. Like, one, to be really 
worried and two to be really chill. <laughs> I would probably just like keep talking like no big deal at all. So Leon thinks this is a cool idea and uh, <laughs> he says that Elliot should dream and he should figure out the future that he's fighting for in this game of chess. Yeah, and Elliot, um, I guess he takes this kind of literally because at night that day he, um, I, I guess he doesn't make the decision to dream, but he, he, he experiences some dreams and they're related to this discussion that Leon had here. Right, because they are imagining these kind of idealized futures, so where he gets to connect to the people that he loves, and where the people around him are happy, like Darlene and Cisco mm -hmm. are getting engaged, and the Wellicks are at dinner smiling <laughs> and laughing uh, with Elliot. And I, I really like that he apologized to Bill from Steel Mountain, I think that was like a really great nod to that moment earlier in the series. I really like that too, I find it sweet. I thought, um, we know that this show also has a lot of references to Fight Club in it, and there's one shot of two buildings collapsing, which I think was really reminiscent of the climax of Fight Club, where you see a few buildings fall down in the background where that, um, Where's My Mind song is playing. And everybody applauds when it happens, because this is all of those people that we mentioned. Also a couple I didn't recognize, um, maybe some of our listeners know who they are, um, they're all eating dinner at a beautifully set table in an alley, and they all start applauding, <laughs> like wildly applauding. And so Elliot's dreaming this future, and then he's thinking about this potential life, and he says, I would very much like to fight for it. And that's when I think he decides he's going to go ahead and with, with the chess match against Mr. Robot. We're going to get to that later. Let's cut back to Joanna and her unlikely boyfriend. I think that... I think that they've mentioned that his name is Derek. I think it is Derek. And so this scene, I think, of course, our suspicion level is raised about all characters in <laughs> yes. this. But she's sort of reassuring him that, you know, even though he can't provide her with the kinds of material wealth she's enjoyed in the past, that those things never made her happy anyway. I feel like the way that she presents this to him is very kind of pointed, though. Because she kind of says it in a way that is kind of intended to reassure him. But I think that if I was hearing that stuff, I would kind of be, like, deeply upset. Well, the way she starts it, too, because he's talking about taking her on a trip. And she says, you're never going to be able to afford to yeah, take me anywhere. Yeah, exactly. And she's just so completely, like, blunt and ruthless about it. She tries to walk that back a bit because she says that he makes her happy and that she loves him. Uh, I also have a note here that says, oh, God, the boyfriend is an aspirational DJ. <laughs> no offense to any aspirational DJs out there. Well, it just, you couldn't get more different from a Tyrell Wellick. Oh, of course. Then, you know, this this character is coming to her life. It also makes me feel like he's probably like a patsy who's getting set up for a big fall. Yeah, well, I think that Joanna has some plans in mind for him. So the chess match we were talking about earlier, Elliot did end up accepting the um, ultimatum with Mr. Robot, where whoever wins this chess match is kind of going to take control of Elliot's life from now on. So Elliot and Mr. Robot are playing this in the park. This is another one of the few brightly lit scenes in this episode. And they keep reaching stalemates. Which is not really that likely. No, and they they reach them again and again. And Elliot's getting kind of exasperated. Mr. Robot says, I'm just making the moves you tell me to make. And I think that goes back to, because we often question as viewers here, who's calling the shots or in control of the situation. And it seems that here, Elliot's, in, Elliot's driving this. And so the outcome is going to be their continued coexistence. I felt like uh, I, I felt like they had hyped up this scene so much that I was expecting one of them to win. 
But I guess they couldn't have really done that because it would have sabotaged a bit of the storyline to get rid of either of these characters. It is a bit of a misdirect, though. I agree with you, where the energy and the length of time they spend setting it up is not really the same as the payoff here. Like, it feels like a bit of a... I don't think it's a letdown, but it feels like some, there should be more <laughs> to it. Yeah, I guess it does just establish that um, they're kind of stuck together for a while now. After that chess match, which I think I originally thought was the ending of the episode, uh, it continues into another scene with Angela and Price meeting in the parking garage. Angela's noticed there's one point of the settlement draft that's never changed in all the iterations of it over all those years. And that point is that the people who filed the class action suit want third-party independent inspectors in the Washington Township plant. And that, even though E-Corp will spend all kinds of money and do all kinds of other things, they've never budged on. Wow, that makes this make so much more sense. Well, it makes you wonder what they're up to in there. <laughs> she says she'll let that go in exchange for something. I think that um, she's kind of starting to recognize her own leverage in this case. It's interesting because she, I mean, relatively, she's very powerless compared to Price. I mean, she even depends on him for her employment. But she's acting like someone who's very powerful, and it makes you wonder what she might have in her back pocket. Absolutely. I like that Angela's now at the point where she's just making, like, direct demands to the CEO of the biggest company in the world. And that impresses him, but it doesn't get her where she wants. And I think this calls back to the earlier Elliot scene, because Price tells her it's good to have dreams. Oh, right. Yeah, it totally does. I think it's interesting that um, when Price kind of snaps her, he, I, I think that he realizes that she is a very competent person, but he doesn't really want to hear her out in this particular case. Um, I think that a lot of people would be very discouraged by that. They maybe think I was wrong, or this plan didn't work out, or something like that. But Angela kind of actually doubles down in a way, because she says, I'm not wrong. That sounds like one of her affirmations, actually. She probably has an affirmation, <laughs> you know, trust your instincts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, I do like her here. I like her gutsiness, uh, and I want to see uh, I want to see if they'll budge on it. We're actually coming to the end of the episode. Like you, I thought the chess game would have been a natural resolution point. <laughs> it was kind of like the climax. I thought it was, but then we still get another couple of scenes. They feel a bit tacked on. I feel like the order of them could have been different. Yeah. This is an SOS from Darlene to Elliot in the last scene. Where she's in touch. She says she's crashing. She needs help in life or death matter. The use of the term crashing is pretty interesting too here. It seems like they are always trying to use the technical term when they can, even if it uh, also is like a, a term that's in general usage. Well, because she also makes reference to init one. Oh yeah, that's, that's a pretty cool thing actually. And it is basically like the first process that runs on your computer. And every process is given a process ID. So init being the first process to run is called init1. So I think here I like that this is kind of a caring big brother moment for Elliot. It's reminiscent of that sibling scene earlier, I guess. Actually, you know what? Okay, now I see why this is the end. Because it does kind of bookend it with the like warm oh, character yeah. parts of their relationship. You know, it does. That's a good point. Okay, I take back what I said with the chess match a little bit. I, I feel like I should just kind of second-guess myself whenever I'm criticizing the show's cinematography. Because they, they kind of know what they're doing. Um, so, Dar Darlene has asked him to speak to her on their old channel. Yeah, which is uh, like an IRC channel in this case. Now, of course, Elliot's in his totally analog life. So to get access to that, he's going to have to make a deal with a shady character. Not the first time Elliot's made a deal with a shady character <laughs> and try to protect a woman in his life. Yeah, that seems to be a recurring pattern for him. 
So Ray's there. He'll figure. He's so willing to be the shaped character in the story. <laughs> he asked who won the chess match. He knew a little bit about what Elliot was up to. Elliot says no one. Which I guess is true. Interestingly now, Mr. Robot, who was driving him towards Ray previously, tells him to walk away. But Elliot, if he does that, he won't get access to the channel to talk to Darlene. So he's going to do whatever he has to do here. Yeah, it's pretty important to him. Um, Ray here, I feel like I might not use this term properly, but I feel like he's virtue signaling at Elliot. He says, What do you mean? Moses heard voices, and Paul heard voices, and all of these sort of, um, upstanding, virtuous prophets of the Bible. Um, so they're just like you. And then he says, and I'm like you. Which is also a strategy Tyrell uses with Elliot to call on their similarity. Does it remind you of when Elliot was talking to Ron in the intro to the series? Does it remind you of that? Not really, but the way you phrased it did. <laughs> okay, because I, I think the difference with Ron is Ron is never trying to get anything from Elliot, and Ray's obviously trying to get something yeah, out of Elliot. Yeah, it's kind of transactional almost. Very transactional, because he's working in pretty hard here. Um, so Ray gives him a warning, don't look where you don't need to, which, uh, I mean, they're... <laughs> that can't be good, can it? Do you remember when Cisco was talking to Darlene in the park, and he was like, I need you guys to be careful, even though I know it's not what you're going to do. I was thinking of that here, because when you tell somebody not to do something, that's exactly what they're going to do. <laughs> yeah, don't put your hand in that socket. Um, so, but Elliot's undertaken this mission so he can meet his ultimate goal and talk to Darlene. So he hops on uh, to the terminal. He uses an actual IRC program called BitchX. I don't really know why it's, why it's called that. It's on the Wikipedia page. But I thought it was cool that they used a real software. What does it... There's a point where I see the gentleman typed to the screen. Yeah, I guess that's the name of the channel that they're in. Oh, okay. Um, the, the way that they spell it out in Leadspeak, like with numbers instead of letters, I think that it looks a lot like the hacker handle for the Jester, who is a famous hacker who... Um, their, their logo was used in the ransomware attack in the season premiere. So I kind of think that they're referencing him again. But it might just be that they're using Leadspeak, which is very common. I thought they were referencing my life because that's what I call my cats. <laughs> Your cats are gentlemen, that's for sure. Yeah, and so like Cat Collective is, you know, the <laughs> uh, Darlene spills her guts. She tells him everything. Romero's been killed. They found the arcade. The FBI is following them. Everything's getting very scary. Elliot decides he's got to do something dramatic um, to protect his sister. And also he says, this is how I fight for that future. So the future that came to him in his dream. What does he do? He decides he's going to hack the FBI. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Mr. Rewatch. We recorded it in Hamilton, Ontario. If you enjoyed our episode today, well, this is a bit of a lighthearted choice for us, <laughs> but we would encourage you to consider contributing to the Chess Federation of Canada. They encourage the knowledge, study, and play of chess in Canada. There are donation opportunities at chess.ca. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin.